If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for October 27th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day and the events of my life from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. My other podcast is the Individual One Podcast. You can find all the information you need about that as well as this show at freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's freespeechbroadcasting.com. This episode of the World According to Zig podcast is going to be a little bit different. It's already different because it's uh, being uh, taped later than normal. Normally, we tape uh, Sunday mornings, Los Angeles time. Uh, This is Sunday evening. Los Angeles time. And in fact, the only reason why we're even doing a podcast for this particular week is it has been such an eventful few days that I absolutely had to do a World According to Zig podcast. Otherwise, I would not have done so because I've had other things going on in my life. And frankly, I'm going to start this show off with a bit of a disclaimer. I am spent. It has been an extraordinary week. I have had a bizarre life, but this week was really stretching it. And, you know, I'm 52 years old now, and I probably stretched it a bit too much. So if I say something particularly dumb during this podcast, I'm going to ask for a dispensation, some understanding, because as I get a, get through what's happened this week, I think you're going to understand, and you're probably going to go, Wow, how is Zig even doing a podcast on Sunday evening after everything that has happened? But there's so much to talk about. I've got to get to as much of it as I possibly can because otherwise it'll be my next week. You know, no one will care. And a large part of what I'm going to discuss is my extraordinary meeting slash interview that went six hours long with former NBC News superstar and Today Show host Matt Lauer, the first time that he's spoken to a media person since his firing in November of 2017. And I will give you all the details that I can about that and all of the analysis of the coverage of that event that you will not want to miss And yes, uh, for the Michael Jackson fans, there's, of course, a Wade Robson angle because Matt Lauer was the guy who interviewed Wade Robson when he became an alleged victim of Michael Jackson. So everything is connected. There's always a connection to everything in John Ziegler's world. And uh, as has been most of this year, there's there's a connection to leaving Neverland and or Michael Jackson because uh, yesterday was a huge day for Grace Ziegler. You know, Grace Ziegler, my seven-year-old daughter. 
She's been on this show uh, several times in the past, about once or twice a year. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? She's growing up fast, and yesterday uh, she uh, she finished her first soccer season. She's not really good, but of course she got the trophy, which is all that matters. And I, I love this because you know I'm a, I'm one of those people, a conservative who hates the everyone gets a trophy phenomenon. And she actually she was so excited, so proud of her season-ending trophy, signifying absolutely nothing. Uh, they they had a good team, but there was no championship. I don't even know that they technically kept score. Uh, but she actually says to me, "You know, Dad, they don't just give you a trophy for nothing." I said <laughs> I had to bite my tongue to say, "Actually." <laughs> Actually, Grace, they do give you a trophy for nothing, but it's, you know, what are you going to do? Break her heart because she was so excited, her first trophy, what have you. But that was uh, insignificant in comparison to what the Ziggler clan did last night, which is the Michael Jackson connection. We were invited by Taj Jackson, who's been a guest on this podcast a couple of times. He is the nephew of Michael Jackson. He's been at the forefront of trying to get the truth out about what a fraud the HBO fictional film Leaving Neverland is about his uncle Michael Jackson. And he was uh, very kind enough to invite me, my wife, and our two daughters, uh, Grace and Diana, to the annual Michael Jackson family-slash-friends Halloween party at the Jackson Estate. And uh, my daughter was very excited about this. I mean, she's kind of become a Michael Jackson fan over the last uh, couple of months, especially since uh, a Michael Jackson fan uh, sent her a very nice care package because she had uh, done that uh, video of of, uh, a fake Emmy Award for Dan Reed and the worst acting goes to Leaving Neverland, the uh, Robson and Safechuck families. And so so she's kind of become invested in this whole Michael Jackson thing. And she's never been to a, a real uh, party of any sort. It's certainly not a other than like a kid's birthday party. And so um, the, the, everyone got all dressed up for Halloween. My wife uh, was a witch. I was Jack the Pumpkin King. Uh, Grace, she started as uh, Sleeping Beauty. But then uh, when I realized as we were getting into the car that since my youngest daughter, Diana, was Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, that because Grace looked like the good witch, you know, there's the bad witch and the good witch, because she looked so much like the good witch or a a good fairy, people were going to presume that this was all a theme Wizard of Oz deal. So Grace decided to not be Sleeping Beauty. She decided that she was the good witch from The Wizard of Oz. And so we go to this party. We we actually had to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements, which I, I, so I'm not sure exactly what I'm allowed to say other than our own experiences. I think we have some latitude here because I, I just want to thank Taj for inviting us to to the party. It was spectacular. Uh, they go all out. Uh, it was so neat uh, for my daughters to meet Brandy Jackson, the niece of Michael Jackson, who we interviewed on this podcast right after Leaving Neverland uh, aired. And I think, think she was, she at least for me, was the reason why uh, I knew that Leaving Neverland and specifically Wade Robson was a fraud. I knew it within minutes of watching her do a different interview in a video before the movie came out. And then in her presence, speaking to her for about an hour in an interview that we aired on this podcast, which was very popular, uh, I was positive of it because she dated uh, Wade Robson for the key years and for a very long period of time, almost their entire teenage years. And I really wanted my daughters to meet Brandy because she's the kind of woman that I hope my daughters become. And so that was very exciting for me for the, to make that happen. And she was gracious, as she always is, 
We spent a lot of the evening with Tom Mazzaro, another guest on the podcast. By the way, uh, Charles Thompson, the British journalist, was also there, another guest on the podcast. It was basically a, a World According to Zig podcast reunion. Uh, but uh, we had dinner with Tom Mazzaro and his wife and his six-year-old daughter, uh, and he's uh, awesome as always. And uh, Grace and Diana had a great time. Diana was a little scared because this was a spooky setting, as you might expect. Very spooky. We didn't go to the spookiest parts uh, of the estate. Um, but Diana at first was was definitely put off. But to her credit, she stuck with it and she ended up having a good time. And she ended up uh, dancing quite a bit uh, on the dance floor. And then my daughter, Grace, my older daughter, you know, she has both beauties and, I guess, uh, guts. She doesn't get the beauty from me. She might get the guts from me. She actually, completely on her own, went up to Paris and Prince Jackson, Michael Jackson's kids, who are basically, I guess, the de facto hosts of this uh, party, and introduced herself, uh, which was quite quite amazing. Uh, and uh, And I think something that she'll probably remember more in the future than she does right now, because I don't think she fully understands the significance of it, but... By all in all, everyone had a really good time, and uh, we thank uh, Taj Jackson for for that invitation. and uh, And who knows, maybe we'll be able to do do it again sometime in the future. So uh, that was yesterday, and that was uh, after an extraordinary period of several days <laughs> that I'm just going to go through the timeline on. So let's go back to uh, last week's podcast. And for those of you who know me pretty well, and a lot of you do who listen, because uh, you've been longtime listeners, you knew something was up, right? It was pretty clear that something was up, but I wasn't able to tell you what was up. But I basically did the entire podcast last week, setting the stage for what I anticipated was going to happen this week. And what I did there was I told you the backstory, and it's a pretty extensive backstory, of my interaction over the years with Matt Lauer. And I'm not going to go through it all right now. If you're interested, go to last week's podcast, check it out yourself. Uh, but it's important because our relationship is pretty unique. I mean, we were not friends. Uh, we, we, I was on the Today Show three different times, high-profile situations. We battled it out in each and every circumstance, but there was a mutual respect there. And I have written several times about these allegations against uh, him that have both been in rumor and now in a book by Ronan Farrow since his firing in 2017, it was very clear to me that people were, and the media especially, were misunderstanding what really happened with Matt Lauer. I, I believed at the time, and I believe even more firmly now, that I have <laughs> I have the most direct source you could possibly have on this in the world. Uh, I believe very strongly that Matt Lauer was fired in November of 2019, and this is so important for understanding everything that happens after this. He was fired because he acknowledged, after a woman by the name of Brooke Nevels came to NBC in the midst of the Me Too hysteria, post Harvey Weinstein, NBC's facing fire for allegedly having killed the Ronan Farrow, Harvey Weinstein story, uh, heads are getting lopped off left and right. Brooke Nevels comes to NBC and says, hey, look, I had an affair with uh, Matt Lauer on company property. You ought to know about this. Uh, and Matt acknowledges it, admits to it. And something that previously would not have been seen as a fireable offense, especially for someone of Matt Lauer's level and, and salary and celebrity and all that. 
all of a sudden they they lop his head off within twenty less than twenty four hours under circumstances that eventually you're going to hear that are just amazing. I mean, having nothing to do with uh, Matt's fault or lack thereof or somewhere in between. Just from a human perspective, that whole story is is off the charts of many off the charts elements of this whole sad saga. So it's incredibly important to understand, and and many people, even in the media, do not understand because they don't want to understand. They think that there must have been something more to it than that, right? They think, oh, wow, for Matt Lauer to get fired, it has to have been a bigger deal than that. No, you need to understand what the circumstances were at the time. We were in the middle of a moral panic. It was a moral panic, okay? And NBC was in a, a precarious political position, and so they may have panicked, but I think in, in, in knowing what I know now, I believe they realized that they had to decapitate Matt Lauer instantaneously because if they did not, let's say they suspended him, right, pending an investigation. If they had suspended him pending an investigation, he would have gotten an enormous amount of support within NBC because people liked him despite what you're hearing now. And he had done a lot of things for a lot of people. And so when you're going to go after a big fish like that, you must go for the kill immediately. You cannot let them survive. This is what happened with Joe Paterno at Penn State. Joe Paterno was effective, although he lingered maybe for a few hours longer than Matt Lauer, maybe just because of the logistics involved. But in reality, Penn State did the same thing to Joe Paterno. They knew they had to get rid of him and destroy him because if you don't destroy Joe Paterno, people are going to respond in his favor and there's going to be a backlash. So they they, they get rid of Matt Lauer and he goes away. Now, I even thought, mistakenly, that he must be fighting NBC over his contract. There's going to be a lawsuit of some sort. No. There's nothing like that. He went away because he knew he had done wrong. He had caused enormous pain in his family. His marriage got destroyed over this. He, he, he was in technical violation of his contract, and he didn't even fight it. He did not even fight it. He just went away and, in my opinion, naively thought, okay, that's, that's it. I, I'm just going to go away, and you know, maybe they'll never hear from me again. Maybe they will. It's going to be a long time. I'm not going to come back at NBC. I'm not going to fight NBC. I'm just going to go away and, and lick my wounds and try to heal my family. And so when Ronan Farrow's new book came out, and I went into detail last week about how even before I spoke extensively to Matt Lauer, I thought that Ronan Farrow's book was a load of crap, journalistically speaking, at least with regard to Matt Lauer. Total crap from just basic journalism. There are, and I and I will go through some of the reasons why I did so last week as well. But there are things in there that do not have documentation that should, by all logical uh, explanations, should. There are things that uh, that pretend to be documented that could not possibly be real, like direct quotations from long ago conversations that have no basis in their foundation. There are uh, sources that are not just a little conflicted, they're completely conflicted. Almost all the sources in the Matt Lauer chapters are people who were fired by NBC. And by the way, of course, Ronan Farrow was fired by NBC and has an accident grind against NBC because his whole narrative is they killed his Harvey Weinstein story. Now, I'm not as convinced of that. I mean, they did kill it, but I don't know that they did it because they were trying to protect Weinstein so much. 
people need to understand there's 53 days, 53 days from the time that NBC passed on Ronan Farrow's alleged uh, Harvey Weinstein bombshell story, and it was eventually published in a magazine. 53 days is an eternity in reporting. So I am not convinced that NBC is lying about what really happened uh, with uh, the Ronan Farrow's Weinstein story. Not that they aren't capable of lying. Trust me, I know. The media people are as scummy as they could possibly get, especially top media executives. But I, I don't see the evidence or the logic yet that they uh, somehow protected Weinstein and are totally lying about this now. I think that Ronan Farrow, who I no longer trust at all, partially because of his Brett Kavanaugh work and partially because of now what I know about his Matt Lauer work, I think he's invested in this narrative. This is a wonderful narrative for him. I'm so dangerous and I'm such a good reporter that NBC tried to censor me and I went elsewhere and I started the Me Too movement and I brought down uh, Harvey Weinstein. Although, by the way, just for the record, still no convictions, no guilty pleas, no nothing in the Harvey Weinstein case. So keep that in mind. Not saying he's innocent at all. I'm just saying... (laughs) <laughs> we're two years later. Shouldn't there be a guilty plea at this point or, or something, a conviction, a trial? We're not there yet. So anyway, um, so back with, with uh, Ronan Farrow and Matt Lauer. Uh, I was stunned after having spoken with Matt a little bit on the phone uh, and ha- us discussing whether or not we would get together for some semblance of an interview. I was. I decided to read Ronan Farrow's book, obviously, because I, I needed to, to read it before I, I did a more formal interview with Matt Lauer. And I was stunned by just what a journalistic joke it was. So let me back up a little bit. So I told you um, a couple weeks ago that Matt Lauer had, had called me, and I was not shocked when Matt Lauer called me. Uh, most people are surprised to hear that. Uh, you know, I knew that I had written uh, what was by far the, the most uh, stringent or str- strongest defense of him and the most uh, uh, complete condemnation of Ronan Farrow's basic reporting. This was before I had read the book. This was just based on what had been reported in the news about what Ronan Farrow was alleging regarding Matt Lauer and this this allegation of rape by Brooke Nevels, because now it's a rape. Now, according to Ronan Farrow, what was to NBC in November 2017, a consensual affair on company grounds has now turned into a rape at the Sochi Olympics in 2014. And that's obviously a very, very different kind of allegation. And so when Matt Lauer called me, I I was not shocked. Uh, And we had a a long discussion about both the facts of the case as well as whether or not uh, we could create a situation where we did some sort of an interview. After that, uh, we spoke... I don't even know how many times over the next 10 days. We, we probably we spoke probably once a day, sometimes two or three times in a day. I don't know the total amount of time. It was in the hours. I spent hours on the phone with Matt Lauer. And again, there were dual purposes here. One, we were talking about the, the, the details, his version of events and the overall story. And two, we were negotiating what kind of an interview, if any, he was willing or able to do. Because he wanted me to come to New York to, to speak with him uh, in at least an off-the-record interview. He wanted to tell his version of the story. And he picked me because he knew 
I would be fair. We have a mutual respect. He has seen my work on other uh, stories that are similar, obviously Leaving Neverland, obviously Penn State. Uh, I'm sure there are others where he has seen similar situations that he now (laughs) believes less so in the media narrative than he did prior to this, where he he looks at it and goes, boy, Ziegler is on to something here. There is something going on here. This is my interpretation of what he has said to me. There's something going on here bigger than Matt Lauer with regard to Me Too and uh, allegations that are not true and they're being believed and being uh, trumpeted by a news media that looks at a, a Ronan Farrow as somehow an unimpeachable source of information when I believe that Ronan Farrow is now an activist. Ronan Farrow is a dangerous, dangerous man. And I learned that more after I finally went to New York. Now, when I've learned in my career, no interview is worth doing unless, no big interview is worth doing, unless you at one point think it's been canceled. (laughs) In this interview, I thought it was canceled twice. (laughs) Once by Matt and once by me, which again goes to this kind of mutual respect kind of deal. Uh, and, And all we had agreed to was, I was going to come out to New York. I was going to meet him either in his home or somewhere else. And uh, I was going to spend all day listening to his story, asking him questions. And uh, the only thing that I was uh, 100% guaranteed was that we would take a photo documenting the meeting and that I would be allowed to characterize the interview, the meeting, and, uh, and talk about it publicly, but without quoting him. I had no expectations of any quotes. Now, this is a highly unusual set of circumstances, and that's because this was a unique situation. I understand better than anybody because I've been through this before. This is not my first rodeo, and Matt Lauer knows better than anybody in the world because he did this as the host of the Today Show for decades. The, The reality is he needs, and I agree with this, he needs to preserve the sanctity, if you will, of his first uh, on the record interview he needs to now there's different ways you could do that you could do your first print interview your first uh, video or television interview what have you but uh, he needs and i agree from his perspective he needs to protect that because that needs to be as big a deal as possible that when he goes on the record for the first time after two years of silence it needs to be universally accepted by the media as okay wow this is the first time matt lauer has gone on the record Uh, But in this particular situation, he's also under fire because of the book. And there's got to be a way to at least get some semblance of his story into the bloodstream uh, of the media narrative, as well as making the message, hey, hold on here. Hold your tickets. There's another side of the story. We used to care about the other side of the story. And this one's really compelling. And that was my view of this. And that was my view even before I made the trip, after almost being canceled by Matt and then me almost canceling Matt. At the, I mean, I'm talking at the very last minute. I mean, literally, I, I took a red eye um, last Monday night. And I would say Monday morning, Matt and I were on the phone and I was still, I was committed to not going. 
uh, because I just didn't think it was going to be worth it. It had nothing to do with uh, with my view of Matt's story or how important it is or how compelling it is. Nothing at all having to do with that. It had to do with I was making an enormous commitment here, both from a resources standpoint as well as time, and I was actually starting to get a little worried about how I was planning this. See, this is the bizarreness of my life. See, here I am playing in, in the big leagues as, as, as much as the big leagues as you, you get, right? I mean, this is the first time Matt Lauer has spoken to a member of the media in two years, and I am literally making my travel plans based upon the concept that I need to prevent myself from buy, spending uh, two or three hundred dollars on a hotel room because I'm doing this on a budget on my own dime. So, so I take in a red eye. I'm driving from from my house to LAX, which is a haul, taking a red eye, which is, you know, a enormous strain, especially when you're 52 years old and you don't uh, sleep very well on planes. Uh, I'm then going to uh, rent a car to save some more money. Not going to even take a, an Uber. I'm going to rent a car and I'm going to drive a, a, a drive I've never done before from from uh, JFK Airport out to the Hamptons where Lauer is and then I'm going to reverse the whole thing in the same day in the same day I'm going to do this you cannot be serious and so <laughs> and in the in between I'm going to have uh, an all day discussion that's going to be one of the more intense of my entire life and so I decided to go forward with it largely because my wife really wanted me to which I found to be interesting and somewhat ironic, given the nature of the allegations. But my wife uh, said, you've got to do this. Uh, his story is really important. You're the only one that can understand this. You're the only one that can, can put this out there in a way that makes sense and is fair and what have you. And so I'm like, all right, okay, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go and do this. So I make the trip across the country. Thankfully, nothing goes really wrong. I mean, there's a zillion things that could have gone wrong, uh, and and thankfully nothing did. Uh, uh, Matt and I got together uh, in his kitchen for you know the media is calling it five hours. It's at least it, we were together at least six and a half, and I would say there was hardly any small talk. I would say that it's it's safe to say that we were engaged in, in an intense Q and A for about six hours. Uh, and, and I'm talking about uh, excruciating details of every aspect of this entire situation, from his firing to the allegation of rape to the aftermath of all this, the specifics of Ronan Farrow's book. And here's the most the most credible thing that, uh, at least to me, what proves his credibility. And, and obviously, a lot of this, you're going to have to trust me on it. But. Uh, having done a ton of interviews in my life and been interviewed a ton of times, there is nothing more revealing. I mean, I'm sure a police officer could tell you this, right? There's nothing more revealing than being one-on-one, eye-to-eye, alone with somebody, getting them to react in real time to information they did not previously have. And that's what I did with the Ronan Farrow book and Matt Lauer. Now, he was aware of some of the basic allegations against him in the book, but he was not aware of the details. The details were uh, not within his grasp because he hadn't read the book because he's so disgusted by the book he doesn't want to read it. 
which is understandable. And I've had this happen many times. I got to tell you, folks, whenever I interview someone who's been in the midst of a media firestorm, it has been universal. And there's, I, there's, I, I can give you five tremendous examples. It is universal that the person or people in the center of media firestorms do not know all the details about what is being alleged about them. One, because the, it disgusts them because they know it's false, at least the people that I'm dealing with. And so therefore they put themselves in a bubble and they don't want to have to deal with it. Plus, no one around them is going to tell them because it's highly uncomfortable, especially in this realm, right? Well, that's what John Ziegler's for. John Ziegler's the guy who comes in and says, all right, I know you've been in this media bubble, but let's talk about what's actually being said about you. Let's talk about what's being alleged. I'm going to go line by line in this book and get your reaction real time. And that's what I did. And I got to tell you, Matt Lauer could not, could not have been more forthcoming. He could not have been more seemingly honest. He could not have been more credible. His story could not have been more compelling and persuasive that not only is there another side of this story, but that uh, obviously I've not spoken to Brooke Nevels, but I've heard her version with her PR rep. Uh, who is Ronan Farrow, and that's what he is. He's her PR rep. I've read uh, that version, and I've seen the interviews with Ronan Farrow, and I am not at all convinced that that narrative makes a damn bit of sense and that the Matt Lauer narrative makes a lot more sense. Now, I can't give you the details on that yet, certainly not by uh, putting Matt Lauer on the record because this was an off-the-record interview. But I can assure you that the basic facts that are already out there are amplified tremendously. And if there was one fact that I did reveal in the column that I eventually wrote for Mediate on Wednesday, which I urge you to check out, which I believe you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, that, and if you can't, just, just Google it because it's been everywhere, that the, the number one fact I was able to reveal is that Matt Lauer met with Ronan Farrow before Ronan Farrow put out his book. Now, that's not in Ronan Farrow's book, and that's not Ronan Farrow's fault because he made a deal with Lauer that that would be on background. There would be no mention that he and uh, Lauer got together. However, there were uh, several important things that Farrow said to Lauer and the person that was with Lauer uh, in that meeting, whom I met uh, on uh, Tuesday as well, briefly, uh, but importantly, and, and I'm just going to share one of them with you right now, because to me, it's about as, as big as it gets for a story like this, because you've got to understand the timeline. You need to understand the context. So as far as NBC is concerned and as far as Ronan Farrow's reporting in his own book is concerned, Brooke Neville sa- never says anything about assault or rape back in November 2017 when she makes her complaint to NBC and Matt Lauer gets fired. She never says those words. There's no evidence she ever said those words until Ronan Farrow's book, almost two years later. Well, here's a quote I was able to provide from two sources from that meeting from Ronan Farrow to Matt Lauer. Ronan Farrow told the two people in that meeting, including Lauer, that Brooke Nevels had come to her story of rape in 
hindsight. That's a direct quote. In hindsight. That's Ronan Farrow to Matt Lauer. Now, in hindsight, and and one other person, in hindsight is about as devastating two words as Ronan Farrow could have possibly uttered, especially when you have the factual record as it exists in this case. Because that's clearly what happened here. Now, the in hindsight, by the way, is not in hindsight the next day. No, 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 no. It's not even in hindsight the next month. It's not even in hindsight the next year. It's not even in hindsight three and a half years later when she goes to NBC with her complaint against Matt Lauer. No, 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 no. It's in hindsight five plus years later when the ultimate Me Too PR person, now a celebrity journalist, Ronan Farrow, meets with her. And I believe there's a very strong argument to be made, logically, this is a circumstantial case that I'm making, that Ronan Farrow is the one who either manipulates her into using those words or convinces her that these words are the proper words to describe what happened to her. And the details of what she says what happened to her, let me just say, again, I cannot give you the other version of the story, but there are numerous, numerous details in Ronan Farrow's book given to him by Brooke Brooke Nevels that uh, at the very least are highly suspect and that are contradicted by logic as well as Matt Lauer's version of events. And so, uh, and, you know, to me, when there's no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, when you go to NBC, when you go to NBC and you talk to two female executives, as she did along with her lawyer, you got your lawyer there, you're speaking to two female NBC executives, it's three-plus years after the event in Sochi. If you don't describe it as an assault or rape, that's the last That's the last time you can do it. That's the last, unless there's some extraordinary, unique circumstances that do not appear to be in evidence here. That's the last time you can logically say, okay, you know what, now I'm going to tell my story, and yes, I felt like I was raped. There was none of that. There was none of that. And Ronan Farrow, I do not believe, is a credible actor here. He is invested in this Me Too movement, and he is invested even more deeply, maybe, in making NBC look bad because he loves this narrative that NBC was running a cover-up, and that's why they killed the Harvey Weinstein story. Well, no. Uh, it is my view, based upon the, the information I currently have and the evidence as I've seen it, both public and private, that what really happened here is that there was no cover-up, much like Penn State. There was no cover-up because there was nothing to cover up until after Me Too hit and all of a sudden consensual affairs between powerful men and less powerful women in technical violation of a contract were enough reason to get rid of somebody who was a superstar at your network. That, that's what happened here. And I, I don't believe there's ever going to be any legitimate evidence that NBC did anything to cover up a supposed Matt Lauer problem. Every single person that's key in Ronan Farrow's book 
is an ex-NBC employee with a huge incentive to forward the narrative that their careers got harmed because they dared to speak up. I mean, there's Ann Curry and Megyn Kelly, and, uh, and you might want to put Meredith Vieira in there, and I don't know. I mean, it's hard to, hard to say. By the way, with regard to Meredith Vieira, who was the person that Brooke Nevels was working for, this is another part that the media won't tell you, and Ronan Farrow doesn't make clear at all. You know, the whole premise here is the power differential between the, the, the Wizard of Oz, Matt Lauer, who supposedly has control over everybody. Not true, by the way, but that's the narrative. And, uh, and, and Brooke Nevels, a producer who, who has no power, and she's basically forced into sleeping with Matt Lauer and doing whatever he wants within the context of those sexual escapades because, after all, that's, that's just the way it works. I mean, as a, as a dad of two daughters, I find that misogynistic. Uh, my daughters aren't going to be that way. Uh, that, that's childlike. Professional adult women uh, are not children. They shouldn't be treated as children, but that's the way Ronan Farrow treats them. Uh, but, I, but I digress. Uh, the reality is Brooke Nevels was not working at the Today Show anymore. She had worked very closely. Her, her office was right next to Matt Lauer's for years, for years. And boy, I'd love for you to know what went on during those years, but I can't. But for years, she was working at the Today Show when Meredith Vieira was also working on the Today Show. Well, by the time so she happens, that's no longer the case. Meredith Vieira is doing some syndicated stuff for NBC. It's not even the same section of NBC. It's not even NBC News. So this idea that somehow, you know, Matt Lauer had her under his thumb is, is, is absurd. But these are nuances that matter because that's, that's the way you destroy a narrative. They don't want to tell you that because the whole narrative is, Oh, powerful man. It's like it's almost inherently rape if he has sex with you because you have no choice in the matter. That's that's absurd. That's absurd. And again, I think it, it has a, a view of women that is misogynistic. So Matt and I spent six hours together going through all of this. It was incredibly detailed. I've never had conversations with my wife that were this open and honest about uh, sexual issues. Uh, We pulled no punches. If you know me at all, you know there is no freaking way you're going through six hours mano a mano with me lying and me not figuring it out. Okay? That's not possible. And I, I say with 100% certitude, that did not happen here. And you also know, if you know me at all, that uh, we, we weren't just uh, you know shooting the breeze talking about why the New York Yankees didn't make the World Series. That's not what happened. This was as intense as it gets. Matt Lauer at one point got teary-eyed talking about his children. And I have to say that um, the, if there was one element of this that I did not fully appreciate – and I had been very tough with Matt on the phone. I, I mean, I basically told Matt, I said, Matt, you got into this because this is a quote from me. I can quote myself. <laughs> I can't quote Matt Lauer. This is a quote from me to Matt Lauer. Matt, you got into this trouble because you made mistakes as an alpha male. You were an alpha male. Now, in your response to this, you're acting like a beta male. Because I, I thought his response was was too weak, too soft. Uh, you know, nothing out on, on television, no interview, a couple of written statements. And, you know, that to me isn't going to cut it, and, and especially in this day and age where the presumption of guilt is immediate once the accusation is made. And, you know, he, 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 he understood where I was coming from, but I think he 
took a little bit of umbrage at it, but we that's the kind of conversations we have. We're very we are very open with each other in both directions. And uh and 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 to me, what I did not understand, what the part of that equation that I would probably have edited slightly, I still agree that from a PR standpoint, uh, he should have done more and been stronger, especially back when the firing happened to make sure that this narrative uh, of sexual assault didn't uh, wasn't allowed to take hold. But uh, I underestimated just how uh, difficult the family situation is for Matt Lauer. Uh, and And I can now understand why, in order to try to prevent further harm, damage, uh, uh, anguish for them, he is kept quiet. Uh, that is a, and if you knew all the details as I do, you would totally agree with me. Um, and so that's that's um, something that I was not fully aware of, privy to, or understanding until uh, we got together. So we have this extraordinary meeting. Uh, I go back, uh, fly back immediately on Tuesday night. I file my story from Mediate, and I, I had already scheduled as a heads up an interview with Glenn Beck on Glenn Beck's radio show. As you, as you know, Glenn Beck and I have somewhat of, an, somewhat of a similar relationship, actually, to my relationship with Matt Lauer because, you know, Beck and I vehemently disagree now on Donald Trump, uh, but we have a mutual respect in other areas. Uh, John Ziegler, I, I think he's fantastic. What of what a- interesting mind he has and so um i i told glenn uh and Stu, his co-host i said you know i'm I'm doing this thing with matt lauer you probably want to talk to me on wednesday and they said sure great so we had scheduled this and unfortunately as is always the case with regard to these stories and this is partially why i hate this subject matter i mean people think i now revel in this being the anti me too guy or something i hate it i hate it with every bone in my body, and part of it, the reason I hate it is because uh, I know the scrutiny I'm going to get in anything that I write for Mediate or anywhere else, whether it's USA Today or the New York Post, and I've, and I've written for both of those as well, the scrutiny I'm going to get is off the charts. I'm going to get way, way more scrutiny than I ever would on any other subject. The The editing is going to be uh, more invasive. Uh, I'm going to be less happy with how the story turns out on this subject than in any other uh, subject matter, and I hate it. And there's always a delay, and there was a delay in getting the story out. We barely got it out in time for Glenn Beck. The Glenn Beck interview went really well. I urge you to, to try to find it. It's on my Twitter page. Uh, but it was odd because Beck clearly was uh, smelling what I was cooking, and I think he probably agreed with me. But he, he seemed almost depressed. Like, oh, gee, uh, you know, now I'm going to have to revisit my thinking on this because John Ziegler has changed my mind about Matt Lauer. But this was odd. I mean, he, he, Matt Glenn has done this before. But uh, we we broke the interview into two segments, a long segment and a short segment. segment and and here's, here's Glenn in between segments describing uh, his reaction to uh, having his mind, I guess, this is my interpretation, changed about Matt Lauer based upon what I was telling him as well as me taking yet another highly unpopular position. This was Glenn. I like John and I wish he had a friend. <laughs> That's definitely going to have to be one of our favorites going forward. I like John, and I wish he had a friend. <laughs> so anyway, that 
so I do that interview, and I have no idea. I have no idea how the media is going to react to this Matt Lauer uh, interview uh, because it's off the record. I mean, I, I you know I've done these things before. I did the the by far the most extensive and first uh, sit down interview on video with Sarah Palin after the 2008 election. I wondered how much the media was going to care about that. They cared about that a lot because much like Matt Lauer, she was sequestered. She was sequestered in Alaska. Frankly, it was easier for me to get to Alaska than it was for me to get to the Hamptons, but I digress. So, uh, but as I told Matt, Sarah Palin gave me a, a bazooka. I mean, she gave me her first sit-down, on-camera interview and uh, at a time when the media was still thirsting for her, and there was obviously... There was no allegations of, of, a, of a crime involved in that. So Sarah Palin inadvertently, or, or I don't think she intended this, but she gave me a bazooka to fight with. Uh, as I told Matt Lauer, he was basically giving me a switch knife, switchblade. I mean, there, there wasn't much I could do with this. And so I had no idea um, what was going to happen, whether there's going to be any media interest or not. I just wanted it out there that, hey, there's another side of the story, and the media environment is not conducive to Matt Lauer telling his right now for reasons that will become very clear, uh, hopefully, in the, in the near future. So uh, the first major media phone call I got was from Billy Bush, which was fascinating because, obviously, one, Billy Bush used to work for the Today Show, used to work with Matt Lauer, obviously was embroiled in a, in a somewhat similar controversy where he got de- decapitated over the whole Donald Trump Access Hollywood tape. And Billy Bush is someone who I like. I also happen to have a I, – I, I, I'm friendly with someone. They're, they're, we have a mutual – one of my best friends, uh, we have a mutual friend who's a producer at Extra where Billy Bush works now. And so I, I really wanted to do an interview with Billy Bush. And so um, – I did an interview with Billy Bush that was about, I don't know, 10 minutes long, which I'm presuming they were going to use maybe 30 seconds or a minute. Uh, and I was shocked that, that they decided not to run it immediately. They did not run it that the first day. They just promoted it. So they promoted it on Wednesday, and they aired it on Thursday. That becomes important as we go along here. But here's what they eventually aired uh, of course, cutting out almost all the substantive parts about the problems with Ronan Farrow's book and why I don't think it's a credible source for an allegation of rape against Matt Lauer. Uh, but here was what Billy Bush reported on Extra on Thursday, involving, including uh, snippets of our interview together. In just a minute, I will talk to the writer who spent over five hours with Matt Lauer in his kitchen. But first, the latest at NBC News since the release of Ronan Farrow's book. New turmoil inside 30 Rock as protesters stand vigil outside the scandal-plagued network. The women's rights group is calling for the ouster of NBC News president Noah Oppenheim, who, despite the network's sexual misconduct controversy, just secretly signed a big new contract extension. Current employees are said to be upset by what's going on. Even former network star Megyn Kelly went on Fox News to call for an outside investigation of the network. All of this comes in the wake of new sexual assault allegations against Matt Lauer, claims he has denied. The former Today Show host who has lived in virtual seclusion just invited one person inside his private world. Journalist John Ziegler spent five hours with Matt Lauer in his kitchen. How did that come about? He called me about a week and a half ago after I wrote a column for Mediate in which I raised some questions about the reporting in Ronan Farrow's new book. What was his energy like he looked um different to me 
than I remember him from the Today Show days. It got very emotional at times. Did he cry? There were moments when he was he was clearly weeping, yes. I was the person telling Matt Lauer about a large portion of the allegations against him in the book because he had not read the book. I went through line by line, specific allegation, detail by detail. He has a very, very different story to tell. Does he want to be back as, as Matt Lauer of Morning TV? I do not believe that that is his primary goal. He is very open. He made enormous mistakes for which he will forever be regretful. But those mistakes did not include any sort of sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, or anything that was in the non-consensual category. John, I appreciate you taking time there uh, from your office to talk to us. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you for watching. If you want more extra, hit the subscribe button. <laughs> not sure what we, why we... Why we have the end of that uh, clip there, but the the best part of the uh, that clip from my family's perspective. See, my family doesn't give a damn about the uh, the content of any of this. They found it hilarious that I did this Skype interview uh, from my home, and the part of the way that I I set this up on Skype is that you can see over my shoulder my daughter Grace's artwork. That she's done for me. I have, you know, my diploma from Georgetown, some autographed photos, and then above that, her, her, she has like a wall of fame of my of her artwork. And and so this was by far the best. And so we I've done this a few times on television before, but by far because of the way Extra blew up the shot, by far this was the best that you could ever see Grace's artwork, and that was what was important, of course, to her. And what was important to my wife was was uh, Billy Bush's hesitation there when he says, thank you for joining us from your office. Like He doesn't know exactly how to describe it because it doesn't really look like an office. And frankly, if he had seen where I was doing it from, he would have never used the word office. My wife thought it was hilarious that, uh, that, that basically our spare bedroom was being referred to as an office. It's the control center for all the craziness that happens in my career, but it is not a place that Billy Bush, at least, would have ever called an office if he got to see the other side of the Skype camera. So, uh, so that was okay. Um, I, you know, maybe I'll talk more about the behind the scenes on that one at the next uh, edition of the podcast. But I'm kind of running out of time here. So, uh, but what was interesting about that was they they delayed it for a day, as I said, and this put me in a tough spot because. My wife's birthday was this week, and every year on her birthday or around her birthday, we go to Disneyland for two days. So I get back on uh, uh, on Tuesday night. On Wednesday morning, I'm doing all this. I'm doing a Skype interview with Billy Bush, and we're literally leaving to go to Disneyland for uh, you know a night stay for my wife's wife's birthday. And I'm thinking it's no big deal because I don't think the media is going to be coming after me very hard on this. Well, I did an interview with People Magazine. By the way, the interview with People Magazine went so well, they never used it. That's how you know they're devoted to a narrative. I I gave them a fantastic interview. They never did a thing with it because it doesn't fit the narrative they want. Uh, USA Today did an interview with me while I was at Disneyland and uh, used almost nothing of it because it blew up uh, their narrative. 
Uh, but the most interesting thing that happened while we were at Disneyland is that one of Extra's prime competitors, Inside Edition, tracked me down somehow at our hotel just outside of Disneyland. And I didn't want to do the interview because I felt like I kind of was obligated to Billy Bush and Extra. Billy Bush, to his credit, let me off the hook on that. And I explained to him that you know, my seven-year-old daughter is really excited about this because this camera has just shown up to talk to me. Is it okay? And, you know, I get, hats off to Billy Bush. He, he's super cool. And so uh, Inside Edition did this interview. And here's the story that Inside Edition did with Deborah Norville being the anchor, which is interesting because she's also a former Today Show person. And so here's what that sounded like. You haven't heard the last of Matt Lauer when it comes to the activities that ended his high-profile career at NBC. Lauer, who has been mostly silent since his dismissal, has given an off-the-record interview to one columnist who says Lauer's version of events is, quote, extremely persuasive. Matt Lauer is on offense, and he's now reaching out to a prominent columnist to give his side of the story. I flew from Los Angeles to New York on a red eye and uh, drove out to the Hamptons. John Ziegler, senior columnist for the website Mediaite, interviewed Lauer at his kitchen table for six hours earlier this week. You can see framed photographs of Lauer's children in the background. It was a very intense conversation. He was emotional at times. He was exasperated. He he says he asked Lauer about the bombshell allegations in Ronan Farrow's new book, Catch and Kill, in which a former NBC producer, Brooke Nevels, accuses him of raping her at the Winter Olympics in 2014. He responded in an extremely credible and detailed fashion in a way that I believe blows up much of Ronan Farrow's reporting. Ziegler says Lauer spoke to him on the condition that only the sum and substance of the conversation would be used, not any direct quotes. Lauer has been reluctant to speak out because of the blowback to his family, but now Ziegler says Lauer believes he has no choice. He's trying to figure out, okay, how do I fight back in this environment where an accused man uh, of his stature is basically presumed guilty now in the media without even a fair hearing. Ziegler says he advised Lauer to do a live internet event using a format like the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearing with a panel of journalists questioning him, including Ronan Farrow. He's aware he screwed up big time. He has caused enormous amounts of pain for his family. And in a lot of ways, he believes that he probably deserved his firing. He doesn't want your sympathy. He just wants you to know what the truth is. Lauer maintains any sexual relationships he had were consensual. Now, what's interesting there is the Inside Edition piece is way more substantive than the Billy Bush piece. So I'm glad I did it. Uh, But I hate when my loyalties are conflicted. I mean, I hate it more than anything almost in the world. And so I was really bothered the whole time at Disneyland whether or not I was doing the right thing. But I'm glad I did do the Inside Edition deal. Now, uh, as far as Ronan Farrow is concerned, this to me, and you know, this is partially how the, the, the media has a stranglehold over the narrative and it's so hard to fight. Here I am. I'm the guy who now has Matt Lauer's story. I have it. I have it in notes. I have it in my head. I have it uh, more than anybody could possibly have it in the media at this point. If you're Ronan Farrow, wouldn't you want to talk to me? If you cared about the truth, right? If you cared about the truth, would you not want to talk to John Ziegler? I think you would. By the way, if you were, uh, I don't know, Megyn Kelly. And you're out there uh, making all sorts of uh, allegations about NBC 
And uh, and Megyn Kelly, trust me, is well aware of what I have done because I've been in touch with Megyn Kelly uh, uh, for a long time. Megyn and I, we're our, we've never met, but we're I, up until now, we've been friendly. Uh, we message each other. She has expressed admiration for some of my work in the past. Uh, and so if you're Ronan Farrow especially, but if even Megyn Kelly, if you're one of these two people, would you not want to talk to me? I have offered both Ronan Farrow and Megyn Kelly in ways that I know they got the message. I have, I have Ronan Farrow's cell phone number. I have his email address. I have messaged previously with Megyn Kelly on a, on a semi-frequent basis. They know. They know this offer exists. Why wouldn't you want to talk to me? Why would Ronan Farrow not even respond to an interview request? I have made a formal interview request of Ronan Farrow. He's got a book out. He's got a book he's promoting. I am now the person with more information than anyone else in the media. Why wouldn't Ronan Farrow want to talk to me? Why wouldn't Ronan Farrow want to do an interview with me? Why wouldn't Ronan Farrow want to destroy me? Right? If I'm wrong, if my view of this case is wrong, why wouldn't Ronan Farrow want to expose me? Or, again, this is important, so I'm going to emphasize it one more time. If you're a journalist and you're trying to figure out what really happened, wouldn't you welcome a new source of information? You don't have to believe it, but at least hear it out. Because when Farrow and Lauer met, it was a very short meeting. And it was mostly Lauer listening to the crap that Farrow was going to put in his book. So Farrow got very little information from Lauer. Not that he didn't get some significant information hopefully someday uh, will be relevant and talked about because I, I think it's relevant. But again, I, I can't tell you what that is. But the reality is, is this. Ronan Farrow won't do an interview with me or even talk to me off the record because he's afraid. He doesn't want new information because new information can only screw up his narrative. And so he's just going to ignore me, which is amazing that the rest of the media will let him ignore me because... It's because I'm not a celebrity. I mean, this has been talked about all over the media. Within media circles, this has been a big story since it happened. It's not as if I'm an unknown person. But I guarantee you, he's just going to pretend I don't exist. But it exposes him more than anything I could do. Because I can guarantee I can guarantee Let me give you an example. You know, the Penn State paternal thing or the Leaving Neverland Uh, Michael Jackson thing. If Dan Reed said to me, hey, John, I want to talk to you man-to-man about what I know about Safe Chuck and Robson and uh, and have a conversation And because I think you're wrong and I want to explain why. I would be on the phone immediately. And if if he was in L.A., I would come see him in L.A. Without any hesitation whatsoever. You've got more information than me and in a subject, I want to hear it. It's because I care about the truth. They don't give a crap about the truth. They care about their narrative and what's good for their career. And by the way, I did ask Matt Lauer about Wade Robson in the interview, and I, I can't tell you what he said, but use your imagination. Do you really think that Matt Lauer would have called me if he thought I was full of crap on Wade Robson, a guy he had been the first person to interview? I think that's a pretty logical uh, presumption to make and I can assure you that based upon my conversations with him that presumption would be accurate but I'm not quoting him uh, but the, the reality is that there are a lot of 
of false and dubious allegations that are being accepted by the news media now in a very, very dangerous way. And I believe that the, the current factual record shows that Matt Lauer is one of those people who's been falsely accused. He made huge mistakes, huge mistakes for which he was punished tremendously and will be punished the rest of his life. I'm not asking, and nor is he asking for any sympathy. It's just about the truth. And this is a bigger reality than just Matt Lauer. Because if you're allowed to say somebody raped you five years later when it's in your self-interest and the self-interest of the writer to say that, uh, and obviously you know the Leaving Neverland situation is very, very similar in a lot of ways, then where does that end? It's never going to end. And that we can't live in that society. We cannot. It'll all come imploding down on all of us. Eventually, it's not just about the Matt Lowers of the world. This is important because of the truth, and it's important because of what kind of society we're going to live in. So I'm going to continue on in this. I have no idea where, if anywhere, if this is going to go with regard to me and Matt Lauer. I have no expectation of anything else happening with regard to an interview or what have you. I believe we would have a best-selling book if we ever did it together, but I don't believe that will likely ever happen. Uh, I, just, uh, I just look forward to the day when I can tell you the full story. Uh, without any kind of restrictions, because it was off the charts and on so many different levels, not just with regard to the allegations in Pharaoh's book, but obviously that's the, the prime focus of all this. So um, that'll do it for that uh, portion of this uh, uh, saga. It, it's, been, it's been an extraordinary few days, and yeah, I'm, I'm pretty exhausted by it all. I'm sure I'll write again about it again at some point. I just don't know when. Uh, but I wanted to get that out there tonight uh, because obviously it's been in the news over the last couple of days. One last uh, story I got to at least mention. I cannot believe that Tiger Woods has now tied the all-time record for most PGA Tour wins at 82. He won in Japan today in a rain-delayed tournament uh, that uh, was a legitimate PGA Tour event, a good field. I'm amazed this doesn't seem to be getting as much publicity as it deserves. This is an all-time achievement. He now has won more PGA Tour events than anybody else, tying Sam Snead. And frankly, Sam Snead's number is is not accurate. Uh, but they gave him 82. And now Tiger Woods is 82. And this is after not playing for months, coming off of another knee surgery, not playing particularly well at the end of the year. I wrote him off. I, I You know what? I'm not going to write him off again until he's 60 years old. I because I, I've been I've been wrong too many times now writing him off. I when he just when he announced he was going to write his book, I thought, okay, this must mean he doesn't think he's got anything left in the tank. Otherwise, why would you write the book now if you were going to win more major championships? And then he goes out and in fantastic style wins today, making history. Wow, that's all I can say is wow. Congratulations to uh, Tiger Woods. Although I don't, I doubt that he listens to this podcast. All right. That'll do it for this edition of the podcast. As is always the case, please make sure uh, that you do just two, two things. One, share it via social media, Twitter, Facebook, Twitter, Twitter or Facebook, word of mouth, what have you, you know, you know the deal. Basically, if you share it and you say something nice, I'll uh, retweet or share it on Facebook. It helps a lot, especially uh, with my ego. It makes me feel like someone's actually listening. And number two, uh, make sure that if you're one of those people who sleeps, when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. 
No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should. Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S H E E X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com one two one two.